sloppy spoilers with your host, DT2. Hello, and welcome to Sloppy Spoilers Take 3. My name is David Taylor II. You know me as DT2 Comics Chat on Twitter. On this episode, we're going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 8 of The Mandalorian, which is the season finale and is in some ways a series finale. We'll talk about that in a minute. First, I'd like to welcome my co-host. Welcome to David, Nemesis Howard. How are you doing, and where can we find you on Twitter? Hey, everyone. Uh, I am glad that we are up and actually recording. You have no idea what we have gone through. So thank you to all of you uh, for listening to this. And you can find me at NemesisFC2 on Twitter, at NemesisFC2. Uh, you can give that shout-out to your aunt again if you want. Oh, sure. That would be wonderful. Uh, I would like to uh, just say to my aunt, rest in peace. Uh, my aunt Joyce passed away at the time of this recording a couple of days ago. So uh, I love you, Aunt Joyce. Rest in peace. Thanks, everybody. All right. Rest in peace, Aunt Joyce. Now we want to give a shout-out to Steve Shadewing Sellers. How are you doing, Steve? Where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, doing pretty well. Um, I'm just uh, kind of dealing with a lot of cold right now, so it's kind of like living on hot at the moment, um, but uh, doing okay. Um, you can find me over at uh, Shadewing. Uh, it's uh, spelled the way it sounds, and uh, ready to get on with the show. This was a great episode. All right. Welcome to Jeff. Dr. Faye Bracey, how are you doing, Jeff, and where can we find you on Twitter? Well, you can find me, as always, at Bracey452 on Twitter. That's at B-R-A-C-E-Y 452, and this this is the most exciting episode I've been waiting for since this whole thing started. It's going to re it's going to repeal so many bad things that happened with the sequel series. I'm more geeked out for this episode than I was for the redemption of Boba Fett, and that's saying a lot. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> lots to talk about and lots of pink elephants in the room. So we got to we got to deal with all this pink. First elephant we're going to talk about is this is probably the last time we're going to see Cara Dune as played by Gina Carano. And Nemesis informed me that as of about 45 minutes ago, uh, Lucasfilm said they're going to retire the character. So Cara Dune just simply won't be coming back. They're not going to recast. She's just gone. Uh, for those of you that don't know what's going on, if you've been on social media at all, you have to know what was going on. But in case you don't, uh, Gina Carano was allegedly fired because of some uh, so-called or alleged transphobic behavior on Twitter. And uh, she posted on her Instagram some comments about the Holocaust and the conditions under which Hitler came to power. And those were the, the, the supposed reasons she was fired. The second story is that she basically just didn't bow to the woke mob. She basically didn't bow to the woke crowd and kind of refused to conform her views to theirs. Uh, she's more socially conservative, it seems. And instead of putting her uh, pronouns in her Twitter profile, she put beep, bop, boop, which was a nod to joy language, the way R2 talks. And... So, and then some, you know, allegedly some sources say that they were waiting to fire her for a while, 
And so I'm going to throw that out to my co-host, but I'll give my take on it first. My take on it is it seems to me she just didn't bow to the crowd because, ironically, it's very similar to the dark side. Once you go down that path, forever does it dominate your destiny. And it seems that she wouldn't allow them to tell her how she had to talk or how she had to represent herself or how she had to conform her views to please the Twitter crowd. And then her post on Instagram was, again, talking about kind of the social conditions involved in Hitler's rise to power. And I think the point she was trying to make was how we shouldn't turn on each other. So it's ironic that if that's the point she was trying to make, that's the way I took what she said, that it's ironic that that very post is the thing they used to get rid of her. So I definitely want to hear from my co-host have to say, because this has been, you know, a buzz in the media for the last week, 10 days, all kinds of videos on YouTube. I want to hear what you guys think. Start with Nemesis. Um, yeah, for me, this is really difficult because there's a lot of politics, I think, involved here, and I don't really want to get into that one way or the other. Uh, what I will say is that her earlier stuff that she she posted, I think Disney wanted to fire then. Um, they just didn't. Uh, for whatever reason, and you can agree or disagree with the political and corporate decisions behind that. The problem I have is that the the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back here, this, this last comment that she made, this picture she made, um, I, I take it kind of personally uh, for family reasons when people start throwing around accusations of anti-Semitism. And to me, what she said was the furthest thing from anti-Semitism that there possibly could be. In fact, historically, it was very accurate. You can agree or disagree with what she was saying, you know, as far as putting in context the current political situation, and I'll leave that up to our listeners to go ahead and make that decision on their own. But when you start throwing around accusations of anti-Semitism and racial insensitivity and white uh, you know, bigotry and stuff like that over what is a historically accurate take, uh, I have real problems with that. And so, you know, for my, opi- my opinion, if Disney wanted to fire her for what she did before, that's on them, and people can have their personal opinions on whether they agree with it or not and what they would do as far as continuing to consume Disney products. But I, I think it was a really uh, a weasel move on the mo- on the part of the mouse to fire Gina Carano for this latest incident. And to me, it's obvious they were just looking for an excuse, and then decided to smear her with a lot of baseless accusations on the way out, which I don't think is fair. So that's that's kind of my take on the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, as far as this whole business with Gina, I, I really am. This is this the whole thing is an example of woke corporatism at its worst. Um, it's hypocritical. It's clear that they intended to fire her and they were just looking for an excuse, as uh, you guys have been saying. Um, I'm really not a fan of this decision at all, especially since she was doing a pretty good job um, in terms of actually acting on the show. Uh, this particular episode backs that up. I mean, it's not her performance at all. Um, it's clearly this stuff going on behind the scenes, which is part of the whole culture war, which I'm not going to get into. But uh, when the corporations decide that they are going to take sides and try to be moral actors, I really have a problem with this. 
um, especially since we are talking about Disney. And as many people have been pointing out, uh, we're talking about a company uh, that thanked the Communist Party of China in Mulan. Um, you know, a, a, com a country that has uh, ethnic cleansing and actually, generally, my view. I mean, when you're talking about a country, uh, a, a company that does business with Communist China, thanks them uh, basically for uh, using the entire area where they have ethnic cleansing and has no problem with this. And then you, meanwhile, you uh, fire somebody over words. Uh, that absolutely is hypocritical and unfair. I think she should never have been fired. Um, I hope that they bring her back as soon as possible um, to stop with this stuff. Yes, it is most definitely intense, like I said, either way. Uh, go ahead, Bracey. What are your thoughts? <laughs> oh, that could be a pot all by itself. But let's keep it brief, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this all started with uh, them demanding uh, – Twitterazzi or whatever you want to call them, demanding that she put her pronouns into her her Twitter page. And she, uh, rather tongue-in-cheek, put in the beep, bop, boop, the uh, the RG language. And it's been uh, a bloodbath of people trying to go after her ever since. And we all know it's always, uh, it's never the larger base of the fandom. Gina Carano is a, a popular figure. Uh, Cara Dune is a popular character. Uh, so the majority of us like her. And she, uh, you know, she's a fighter. She's a trained fighter, so she's not one to be bowed. Unlike, uh, it reminds me of the way that Chris Pratt has been taken after to the point where he finally started uh, reining it back in, uh, which is kind of sad for me. I hate to see uh, people with opinions that are in no way offensive uh, continuing to have to uh, be counseled and go on this apology tour like uh uh, the formerly super brave Norm McDonald. I'm glad to still see people like Bill Burr and uh, David Chappelle out there just telling it like it is. So, uh, you know, as, as Steve said, you know, Disney, who was like, uh, you know, giving high praise to people who are literally Oregon farming their dissidents and their political prisoners, uh, but they want to fire her just because they're looking for some excuse. Uh, when the when the picture she said was in no way about the Holocaust, but it was referring to how uh, Hitler couldn't have come to power without neighbor turning on neighbor, and that inference is very clear in the post she made. So it's all just an excuse. It's all political. I too hope that uh, Disney looks at the people canceling their Disney Plus, the uh, loss of all the toy sales of the of the uh, Caradoon black figure, and think like, well, you know, maybe we should bring her back the way we did James Gunn. So we have definitely brought up James Gunn. We have definitely seen redemption in other areas. We have definitely seen people canceled the things they've done on social media and brought back. So yeah, that's why I say, you know, things change at the last minute in this kind of business all the time. And it's never, never really over till it's over. So for now, this is probably her last appearance as Cara Dune, but we'll see how that unfolds. All right, that's one pink elephant. We'll get to some more as we go, but let's jump into the episode. Okay, my general thoughts about this episode is uh, rewatching it. <clears throat> I really thought it was almost perfect. I mean, I, there wasn't anything I would change. I thought it was a perfect setup for everything that needed to happen. It obviously had the best ending we've seen since... The Lucas movies, uh, what I will say, 
is that the Mandalorian, especially with this ending, now reminds me a little bit more of Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles because hmm. that was the show that picked up from the end of T2 and really kind of honored the legacy of the movies because the rest of the movies couldn't really decide what kind of direction they wanted to go, so they picked a bunch of different directions. And none of them really worked, but Sarah Connor Chronicles on TV really did work, and it really understood the mythology and lore and deepened it and added to it. It's one of the best shows I've ever seen, probably my favorite show of all time, or at least among my top three. That's what The Mandalorian feels like when they have episodes like this, written by people that understand Star Wars and understand what the fans want to see. So I really, in rewatching this episode, I really don't have any complaints at all, which is rare. But that's how good I thought it was. I enjoyed every moment. I enjoyed every scene. It had internal plot logic. Everybody was acting in character. It had such a powerful ending, such an emotional ending on so many levels. And also, it's one of those episodes you can watch over and over and over again and not get tired of it. So I, I just thought this was great. I just, just like, you know, most of the Star Wars fans that liked it, loved it. I just thought it was great. So I'm going to throw it out to my co-host. Let me hear what you thought, general thoughts about the episode before we go into specifics. Start with Bracey. Oh, man, I think you really said it all. The uh, the episode just fires on all cylinders for me. Uh, uh, Plot-wise, uh, pacing, it all came together. Uh, it's a, a beautiful way to wrap up all these story points from the uh, the two previous or from the two seasons in total. Um, this is kind of the end we uh, we were hoping for, the kind of end we were expecting to some degree. And I tell you what, if uh, if Disney pisses me off enough with the whole Gina Carano thing and whatnot that I never watch The Mandalorian again, this is a good enough ending for me. I could live with that. That's how good the episode was. All right, now that's a good uh, segue. That's a good segue into why this could be a series finale. I'll talk about that when I hear from the other two after we hear from Steve and Nemesis. But I'm definitely going to bring that point back up, the series finale idea. Uh, go ahead, Steve, general thoughts on the episode. Yeah, I have to agree. This was a near-perfect episode. And, in fact, uh, um, when I did a text review of it, I gave it a five out of five at the time. Um, and, and I generally do not give very many of these out. Uh, so the fact that I did that, I think ought to tell you something. Um, and, and really, it's just because there's so many different things that uh, work together. Uh, you have the whole uh, rescue mission plot, and, you know, and the tension just builds and builds. I mean, the action is excellent. You know, everything the villain does makes sense. Um, you know, you have a really great cast of characters, and they brought in some really great characters uh, to share this adventure with. You know, and then they brought in a character, you know, towards the end, uh, sloppy spoilers. I mean, Luke Skywalker, how uh, excellent is that? And, and none of it really feels forced. You know, everything just comes together and, 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 that, and works as it should. Um, and it's just a, a great action-adventure piece. Everything is, uh, honors the legacy of George Lucas uh, from top to bottom. And you can tell this whole thing is a love letter uh, to, the, to the saga and to George Lucas, and I couldn't be happier. Could not be happier. I feel the same way. Go ahead, Nemesis, general thoughts. I think that the way I would sum it up is this. 
over the last several years, we've had this constant, uh, you know, tectonic pressure between the new Star Wars fandom and the old Star Wars fandom. We accuse the new Star Wars fandom of not staying true to the, the source material and changing Star Wars, and they accuse us of living in the past and, and relying on nostalgia. And you can feel whatever way you feel about that. Obviously, if you've listened to the show, you know how most of us feel. But this episode did something truly spectacular in that for however long this episode was, all of us were that kid again that I was in 1978, sitting there watching Star Wars with a sense of wonder and delight that we were united together as one fandom for a brief moment in time loving Star Wars together and all that that entails. And if Favreau and Filoni and everybody involved with the show never does anything again, that is simply amazing, and I have to give them all the credit of the world for it, for that, because I sat here with my son and my children, and they understood my love for Luke Skywalker And I was united with them in my love for something new that was being done with Star Wars. And we were all children together enjoying a story from Star Wars the way it's meant to be enjoyed. And I I can't give any higher praise than that. Absolutely. I agree with every word of that. We were that kid again, the feeling. And that's why I want to talk about how this could serve as a series finale. Because the show had become the adventures of Mando and Baby Yoda or Grogu, as we find out later from Ahsoka, what his name really is. The show had become the adventures of those two. Uh, Baby Yoda basically took the world by storm as soon as we met him uh, in the first season, and Mando changed his entire life for Grogu. Whatever he was, whatever his focus was in terms of his bounty hunting and in terms of his values and in terms of his just doing his job and collecting his money and being on his way, that changed. All that changed when he met Grogu. And he turned his back on just about everything he knew, friends, foes, whatever, to protect his child. And so this season he finally got a line on where he could bring the child to get the child the training it needs since uh, Grogu exhibited clear force-wielding power. So for the emotional send-off that we see, uh, maybe it's like sending your kid off to school. Maybe it's like sending your kid off to college. But, But Pedro Pascal did such a wonderful job of selling how Mando was feeling because he's crying. And Grogu is watching him as he gets in the elevator with Luke. And everybody's bawling. If you have a heart at all, you were bawling at that scene. And so everything that we enjoyed and loved about the Mandalorian kind of came to a close with that scene. So even when they come back with season three, (coughs) excuse me, uh, it's supposed to be the fight for Mandalore sloppy spoilers if you didn't know that. And uh, so it would probably be Mando and Bo-Katan and Boba trying to reestablish whatever order they're going to establish 
on Mandalore. At least that's the preliminary, you know, reports. But that's not going to be the same show. So this was the end of kind of the Mandalorian as we came to know it and love it. And so it is a series finale in some sorts because the next time we see the Mandalorian, even if it's the same writing staff, the same directors, the same aesthetic, the absence of, of Grogu will be tangible. It will be palpable. You'll feel it. It's not going to be the same show. That doesn't mean it's going to be bad, but it's not going to be the same. All right, let's dive into specifics. The opening sequence is uh, our gang going after Dr. Pershing, and they have to get him from some Imperial officers, okay? Uh, and they're trying to find a way to get on Moff Gideon's ship because they have the coordinates, but they need to get there. And so that way is through Dr. Pershing and taking over uh, taking him from the Imperial Guards that had him. Let me hear your thoughts about that sequence. Uh, what I thought was, I thought, uh, first of all, the actor that ends up being the last man standing uh, until he gets shot by Kara was the same guy that played, I forgot his name, on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the same guy that deceived uh, Daisy's sister, Cora. So didn't like him then, don't like him now, so he plays <laughs> villains well. So, uh, you know, but it was a lot. It was one of the biggest nods to the lore we've seen again. Talking about her tear representing Alderaan and the world being blown up, and he, he really needled her with it. And, but the most interesting thing about his presentation was he framed it as ridding the galaxy of terrorists. So the irony here that he's talking to Cara Doom of all characters, is not small because from his point of view, and I'm sure from whatever mob hates Kara, she's a terrorist or hates Gina. She's a terrorist. She's an outsider. She won't conform. And that's what the empire was about, conforming to Palpatine's rule because he said it was order. It brought order to the galaxy. And you either joined or you got hunted down. That's exactly what happened to Gina Carano. You either join the mob mentality or you get hunted down. And so he really needled, really needled Kara with that Alderaan thing, and she shot him square in the face. He shot his partner in the back, and he died, and then Kara shot him in the face, ringing the ears of Dr. Pershing. But it was just a really impressive scene. Even Mando was surprised that Kara responded that way, but she did what she had to do. So let me hear your thoughts about that opening scene. I thought it was great. I thought it was tension field, but again, it made you feel like it was a part of the George Lucas Star Wars movies. It made you feel like you were reliving Star Wars and Empire and Jedi all over again, that, that this was the same universe without a break. So let me hear your thoughts on that. Start with Steve. Yeah, this was a really good uh, opening scene, and uh, it was just a lot of fun the whole way through. Um, I really got the feeling that that guy, the Imperial that was holding on, was trying to bait uh, Kara into killing Dr. Pershing by accident. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to go down. I know I'm going to die, but I'm going to make sure that, you, that, that I die, making sure the Pershing dies so that the information doesn't get out. 
Um, so I, I can totally see where he was coming from and trying to bait her. Um, and the baiting was really done. And I love the back and forth. Um, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, I was on the Death Star. Which one? Uh, just, you know, just a little <laughs> nods like this. Like, yeah, there were, because, you know, there were two. I mean, the second one in, in Jedi and all that. Um, but in addition to that, the whole idea that, oh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah, you, you killed all these people that were on these two Death Stars. And it's like, well, that was because you guys were blowing up planets with your planet-killing super weapon. So don't, don't, don't even go starting with that. That is complete nonsense. But but we know that. I mean, we as the audience know that this guy is full of crap and that, uh, you know, eventually something's going to go down and Gina's going to shoot him, and she does. And I, I have to say, Gina Carano really plays the scene well. Um, you know, whatever you might say about her as a person and whatever you think of her politics, and, you know, there are things I don't like about her either. But um, I cannot complain about her acting in this scene or in this episode. Uh, Kara is, a, you know, an angry survivor uh, of a massacred planet. And, and she probably has a good number of survivalist guilt and pain from that. And she acted, um, I think, completely believably with that character. I mean, the question was not whether this guy was going to die, but how fast and how hard. Uh, so, you know, being able to see that was very, very satisfying. And um, I think this is probably one of Gina's, or certainly one of Cara Dune's best scenes um, in the last two seasons. And it's really nice for her to get that moment uh, before uh, she goes. All true. Go ahead, Nemesis. What would you think about that opening scene? Yeah, I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. I thought it was interesting. I think where I'm going to go with this is talking about this idea from a point of view. We hit a little bit on this with uh, Bill Burr's character, but I think this, this scene hit it even more. And, and this is not new to Star Wars. A lot of people think that this, uh, this, idea, these, this idea that we're looking at points of view and things like that yeah, we never hit it on, on a larger scale, but even with Ben Kenobi, you know, in uh, uh, Return of the Jedi, you know, when Luke confronts Ben about his supposed lie about Darth Vader, you know, a lot of people I've seen, you know, condemn Kenobi for that, but it's he, he, he has a nuanced argument there, and I, and I hate that word because it's overused, but it's true, where he's saying from a certain point of view, your father, the good man who was Anakin Skywalker, died, and Darth Vader was born. And we've got that same thing going on here. And so I thought what your comments about Gina Carano were right on point, which is for the, for the greater world, the society, and I don't want to put too much on the show, but everybody has their own points of view. And if we took some time to understand what's going on from other points of view, we'd probably be better off as a society for it you know, to see through someone else's eyes and have some empathy. I'm not an absolute relativist when it comes to morality and things, but I'm also not an absolutist, you know. And, and you know, to throw out another quote, you know, only the Sith deal in absolutes. Well, I think that's absolutely true, you know, so, which is, a, you know, weird to say, but, but there it is. So I think that this idea, this point of view, where they're bringing up that to this Imperial guy, the the – the rebels are terrorists. And if you look at it through his eyes, through his point of view, with what he knows, his facts, he's got a point. And so it's such an interesting way to, to and it's such an interesting concept to put in this little scene. And it seems like a throwaway, but it, 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 there's a lot of layers there to dissect if you choose to. And, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, it was just so layered. 
so layered. And again, that's what good writing does, man. It makes you think about a bunch of different things on a bunch of different levels. Go ahead, Brady. Thoughts on the opening sequence? Yeah, there's a lot to get into here, uh, philosophically as well as the scene itself. Uh, touching on the scene itself, I did like the inter- interplay between the two characters. You know, like, oh, you know, you're a terrorist. Like, well, you blew up a couple of Death Stars. And uh, I-, I think, like, uh, I don't know if he was trying to kill Pershing, although I think that might have been part of his goal. But I like the idea also of, like, you know, this guy is so uh, into his own ideology that he's uh, like, well, okay, I'm obviously going to die. Like, she's... Uh, She's a, a rebel uh, a drop trooper. And uh, you know what? I'm If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out just digging that knife and twisting it. I'm going to get right under her skin. Uh, you're not going to torture me for any information or anything like that. You're just going to take me out super quick. So there's that aspect that I thought was going on there. Now, the interesting philosophical question, of course, is the fact that he calls them terrorists. Uh, you know, like, because in his mind, you know, you blew up hundreds of thousands of people on two different Death Stars, it, completely ignoring the fact that the Death Star blew up billions of people on a whole planet. Uh, you, know, you know, how much of that population was involved in the rebel movement? Probably an infinitesimally small amount, you know, because the rebel forces we know were vastly outnumbered by the, uh, by the Empire. So there's, there's no equivocation there. Even if, uh, like, like Nemesis said, like it's trying to look at the different points of view, there's no equivocation, and I don't think this was the intention per se of the creators of the show. But you can't help but sort of like related to things that have been going on for the past several years, because uh, it it all reads like uh, the the ideology of uh, of the empire, which is we know uh, based a lot on the uh, uh, socialist and fascism of the. The Axis powers in World War II, you know, they're clearly modeled a lot of them off of Germans. They have the, you know, the troops of the stormtroopers and all this, is they have dehumanized anybody who opposes them. They've created in them an other, an enemy, and once you have uh, removed the humanity from your foe, it's okay to do anything to them, including complete and total genocide of your enemy. That's a very, very good point, and... It's always kind of chilling when we see that attitude in Imperial troops because most of the time when we see Imperial forces in the movies, not so much in the animated series, but in the movies, they're pretty much kind of yes or no, no, sir, following orders, that kind of thing. But when you hear the philosophy, other than the moths, the moths tend to speak, Moff Tarkin, Moff Gideon, all that. But when you hear what they're really thinking, everything that opposes them is to be stamped out, wiped out, you know, converted or crushed. And they really believe that. And there are just so many parallels in real life to that kind of thinking. So anyway, they make it through that. They get the doctor and uh, their next scene is they need to pick up two old friends to help them. Because Mando thinks they need their help, but Boba doesn't. And I really liked how when they uh, encounter Bo-Katan and Koska, how, once again, the difference between a religious commitment and a political commitment is highlighted. Also, because remember I alluded to this before, Bo-Katan instantly recognizes Boba Fett as a clone. 
and uh, you guys' points were well taken about how, but we can't really hear the stormtroopers' voices. But Bo-Katan knew, knew what she was listening to as soon as she heard Boba speak. And so once again, it ties you in to the larger Star Wars universe and it makes you feel like you're, you're living in that same world. But also, it brings into question, what does it really mean to be a Mandalorian? That's what I think they're going to continue to explore next season. But what does that really mean? Does it mean a commitment to the religious sect, the zealotry of not taking your helmet off and earning every piece of your armor? Did you earn that best car? You know, uh, when Bo-Katan said you are not a real Mandalorian, we found out that, that that's not a race of people. That's what this show uh, showed us. So what does that really mean? And then they had a little dust-up. Now, the only thing that kind of made me flinch a little bit was that I didn't really believe that Koska would be strong enough to just resist Boba's, you know, wire, because that thing held Chewie. So I don't know if, you know, she could just throw her arm up there and whatever, whatever, that's minor. But uh, the other thing I liked about this encounter was that it was plot logical. It was so logical it made my brain hurt from the goodness because Bo-Katan didn't want to get involved. She said, you don't have the coordinates. You'll never find him. She said to Boba, you're not a real Mandalorian. And Mando was like, we do have the coordinates. He's on an Imperial light cruiser, you know, but we need help getting there. And she's like, you can take me to Moff Gideon, and there you see her motivation as the character, and that's what gets her interested. She also says when Casca and Boba are scrapping, that if they had put up that kind of fight against the Empire, that maybe Mandalore would have never fallen. So you can see where her heart and her values are. And the only reason that she agrees to go along on this quest is because it's going to help her further her goal. And she says that uh, because she's going to need the Darksaber. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. So I just, you know, other than believing that Koska could go toe-to-toe with Boba Fett, uh, and kind of be his equal, I didn't really buy that. But other than that, that's minor. You know, that's petty. But other than that, once again, I thought it was beautifully written, acted, and directed, and it really kind of sets up what's going to come later in terms of the character motivations and why they're doing what they're doing. So let me hear your thoughts about the Mandalorians and, you know, all of them meeting and what that meant. Uh, Start with Steve. Okay, yeah, uh, this was generally a good scene. I had the same issue you did as far as Costco, and I keep forgetting her name. Uh, I keep rem- I remember the actress kind of, but I keep forgetting her name. That's what how uh, memorable this character is to me. Uh, but they were clearly trying to uh, build her up to to be Boba's equal, and there was a little bit of girls get it done with that. But you know, I can kind of roll with it. It's not a big deal. Um, it didn't make Boba look that bad in the scheme of things, and. Um, you know, and you kind of do want to have a little bit of that tussle. And it kind of shows a little bit of Mandalorian society. Everything is a fight with these people. Um, like, you know, it's like almost, you know, when it comes to greeting, it's usually like, uh, you know, hitting each other. So that, in a way, they're kind of like Klingons in that respect. Um, so that, that was fine. Um, I will say I really love the line where Bo-Katan says, yeah, I've heard that voice a thousand times because she has. 
uh, in the Clone Wars, she, you know, and I think to a certain extent in Rebels, she knew Captain Rex uh, especially. Um, Captain Rex was there with her at the Siege of Mandalore. She she knew a fair amount of clone troopers uh, that were there that day. I mean, they were they, there were a bunch of clone troopers uh, that had been uh, sent as a detachment um, by Obi Wan's orders with her. Uh, so she she got, probably got to know at least some of them, and especially uh, Captain Rex and maybe a couple of others. So yeah, she definitely uh, would know that voice anywhere. Um, but I find it interesting that she kind of varies from okay, I'm going to stop the fighting to I'm going to start baiting Boba Fett, <laughs> you know, because he's not a real Mandalorian. Um, but I mean, it might be that she's trying to test him. That, that you know, she's kind of playing a little bit of a game with him because she is a bit more of a tactically minded character. Uh, but it is kind of interesting to see that. Um, the, the definitely the differences in view of what makes a Mandalorian. Uh, I will also add that um, you, in addition to the, the idea of the religious Mandalorian and the political Mandalorian, you have somebody like Boba who believes that being a Mandalorian is his birthright. Um, you know, all he cares about and what makes him wear, uh, worthy of the armor is the fact that uh, it was bequeathed to him by his father, the man who raised him, uh, Jango Fett. And Jango Fett was a foundling and a Mandalorian, uh, absolutely. So, you know, he, his connection with them is based on uh, blood and the fact that uh, he was raised by a man who was a Mandalorian. To him, this is, he is a Mandalorian because this is what is his uh, by right of birth and by right of blood. And so that is also a very different way of looking at it. And in addition, you also have the idea of uh, Mandalorians looking down at simple bounty hunters. Like, oh, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to be in for bounty hunting. But the minute that uh, Mando uh, talks to her about, oh, yeah, uh, you're going to get to have this light cruiser for your war. Um, and, and, oh, by the way, uh, the Darksaber uh, is on there as well because Gideon has it. Um, her ears instantly perk up. So uh, Mando knows how to play this. Mando knows what motivates her now, and he knows how to, you know, to, to, to drag the carrot along to make her go along with it. And that, that, that's really, really well done in his part. So in a way, Mando is kind of like the adult in the room, and to a certain extent, Bo-Katan, although she goes back and forth between needling and, you know, playing the adult to some extent. Uh, but, yeah, aside from the, the Casca character, you know, trying to be billed as being equal Boba Fett, no way. Um, everything was fine. I, I, really, I really did like this scene. Cool. Go ahead, Bracey. Yeah, the uh, I guess I'm going to start off with the same thing you guys all start off with. Uh, there is no way Costco, like 100 pound Costco, is going to be able to outpull 200 pound Boba Fett. That's that's just not happening. I, I didn't like the fact that she was able to so easily pull him out off his feet, especially after we just saw him like wreck a dozen stormtroopers solo. So there's that. I, what I did like about the fight is. Uh, uh, one of the things that we never really got to see in the original trilogy so much was the uh, creative uses of the jetpack, and uh, they do some more of that in this episode, but I liked uh, the way that she used it to sort of parkour her way around Boba Fett using superior agility to get the better of him. See, that made more sense to me as far as fight choreography goes, so I appreciated that moment, but there's, there's no way she should have been able to pull him off of his feet like that. So if you're going to have a fight between uh, two physically unequal opponents, you should make it make sense. It shouldn't just be like rah-rah girl power. So half liked the fight, half didn't like the fight. As for the scene of itself, boy, this was so good. I love how deeply uh, we keep peeling back the layers of Mandalorian culture and the uh, 
the the individual characters themselves. In this case, uh, specifically Bo Katan and Boba Fett, and like you said, their their motivations are laid very bare here. In the fact that uh, uh, Filoni especially is so good with all this interconnective uh, tissue of those, all this world building. These little inferences, like, you know, like, oh, I've heard your voice a thousand times. And you can see her, like, just really gritting her teeth when she's saying that. Because when she's looking at Boba, she might well just be looking at an Imperial trooper, as far as she's concerned. But Boba is just that unflinching man with no name, or like, well, you know, he's got a name, but you know, man with no face for uh, for most of his Star Wars career kind of badass who just, you know, he just takes it all in stride and he does what he's going to do. So I like seeing uh, these opposing viewpoints in all of them. And uh, especially we touched on this, uh, I, I gave a little tidbit of this a little time, a little, uh, on my words, a little bit previously when we talked about Boba Fett, that the colors on Mandalorian armor uh, are significant. And uh, Boba Fett's, uh, had changed his uh, his gold bands on his armor, uh, which had meant vengeance over to red, which was honoring the father, and his green was uh, for duty. And uh, Django Fett's colors, his largely blue color, uh, signified reliability because uh, you know he was the best of the best of the bounty hunters. And so you look at Bo Katan, and she's got mostly uh, mostly blue, which like. It sort of symbolizes like she is this leader that the Mandalorian people can rely on, whereas Boba Fett has a duty. Once again, like seeing how these characters all have a code, but they all have different codes, and that is just so much fun to see in this scene. Different code, that's right. They're all people of code, but it's not a uniform code. Excellent point. Go ahead, Nemesis. Yeah, this... This scene is fascinating to me, and, and I think that um, I think this is why the Mandalorian will continue to be successful, even though this, I guess, this era of the Mandalorian is over now that uh, Grogu has moved on. Spoilers for the end. Um, I look at what is going on with Mandalorian society, and and before I get into that real quick, I think that the reason that they allowed um, Saska, I think that's the name. What was the name of the, yeah. the character? Saska, that's uh, right. Koska, yeah. It, to to have such, you know, to have to be so successful against uh, Boba Fett is well is I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they brought in a wrestler. You know, it's it's Sasha Sasha Banks from WWE. You know, so whenever they bring in a wrestler or something like that, they always let them be very successful in all the physical stuff they're doing. And, and uh, you know, ma- no matter who the wrestler is, it's kind of I, – I wonder if it's almost in their contract sometimes. And, and they're really showing off her agility and everything that she has because she is a gifted athlete. So I think that's a little bit of what they're doing. And then, and then I think Steve hit on, on some of it as well. But I really wanted to go back to this idea of Mandalorians, and I'm looking at it, and I think this whole – examination of Mandalorian culture, Mandalorian society can be really fascinating and, and drive a show forward, uh, you know, because I look at them and at first I was trying to put them into an American perspective and then I realized that I was being too colloquial in the way I was looking at it and that Mandalorians really are the Arab world 
of Star Wars. What do I mean by that? You have a certain segment of the Arab world which is consumed with uh, fighting or jihad based on religion and religious sects and religious cults, which is what Mando used to be a part of. And they're gifted warriors in and of themselves, but base their society around religion. Then you had, uh, you know, especially, you know, in, in the early 20th century and beyond, uh, before that, you also had Arab clans, and you all have all of these Mandalorian clans that fight each other, all of them claiming to be the true inheritors of the caliphate. And even though they have some ties to the religion, they really are secular. Uh, you look at, you know, modern examples of this are like King Abdullah of Jordan and things like that, and they're trying to claim leadership of all of the different clans to be the ultimate ruler of the Arab world or Mandalore. And then um, there have been different Arab sects that broke away from all of that and are almost ostracized for turning their backs on family and clan to work um, for foreigners, you know, some that worked in the Turkish, in the Ottoman Empire, some that worked uh, for Europeans, there were the various assassin clans and things like that. And so I think it's a really interesting parallel from a historical perspective. And to build on that in Star Wars, I think would be absolutely fascinating going forward. And so that is kind of what I'm looking forward to. And I think we're seeing some foreshadowing of that in the series and the scene in particular. Wow, you, you know, there. <laughs> you make a really interesting point there, uh, Nemesis. And like, and you, you think about like you, when you normally you think about like the Sand People as like a kind of a, a very early medieval sort of Arab culture, you know, where they're just kind of living out there in the deserts and they're nomadic and they're they're riding their banthas and all that. But like framing it like that, you can see why it was so easy for Boba Fett to insert himself into that culture until he re- could reclaim all of his uh, possessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very true. And the other thing about the Mandalorians is that they've been scattered because their world has been destroyed, and they want to they change that. They want to fix that. But like so many other people or humanoid races or any, any group of living things, they don't ha- all have the same idea on how that's to be done. So once again, uh, for all you writers, this is what good writing looks like. It speaks to issues that you can relate to and makes you think about your social, political, and religious views, whatever they are, because you see them reflected or challenged in the characters. Now moving on to this next scene, I also love this next scene. The reason I love this next scene is because it was, first of all, someone who knew how to plan an operation, and I always love that when I see that in a character. Anybody that knows me knows that Batman is my favorite superhero, and the reason that he is is because if Batman can't outfight you, he can almost always outthink you. And I always respect that when I see that in character. So what Bo-Katan did was she came up with a plan that actually made sense given the time and the resources that they had. Uh, also, I want to give a shout-out to Boba Fett for doing some of the best flying in the entire episode. Uh, Boba did yeah. so much just incredible flying. 
And, you know, the kind of skill you have to have to make an attack look real but not actually destroy your target. And uh, he jetted out of there in hyperspace as soon as his work was done. And we don't see him anymore in the episode, but we know we're going to see him again. And uh, just, you know, even though Bo-Katan seemed to have nothing but contempt for him, he was an integral part of executing the next stage of what happened. And so he definitely deserves some propers for that. I love the idea of them in an Imperial, uh, uh, a little uh, cruiser ship like Return of the Jedi. Same idea, and, but they're going to fly in. But this time they flew into the TIE fighter port. That was brilliant. They set it up so they, they look like they're under attack from Boba. And uh, the Imperial operator was like, you know, negative, negative, you do not have clearance. You can't come in here. She's like, yep, yeah, no, we're under attack. We've got to do something. So she flies straight into the port that would release the TIE fighters, effectively shutting down that line of defense from uh, the Imperial ship, which was brilliant. And then they get out and they start fighting people by hand. And that was definitely a girls get it done scene, but I liked it. It was cool. They're fighting their way through. Everybody in there is a good fighter and a good shot. So they proved that in Stormtroopers fall with one blaster bolt. We know that. But that was just brilliant. So just getting on board, I thought, was excellent. Really, really liked it. And also, we uh, see how Mando was tasked with trying to shut down the dark troopers before they could fully power up. Because Dr. Pershing said, he says a very, very chilling line, he said their last week, or the human inside was the final weakness to be solved. So in other words, these are close to the near-perfect soldiers. They're strong, almost indestructible, relentless. They're basically like Terminators, except it looks like a little bit stronger and a little bit more coordinated. And there's no human inside the suit. So uh, again, I thought it was a really good setup, but it was great action just watching all the firing and all the fighting. And uh, it's always cool to see the Mandalorians use the jetpack as a part of their fighting style. I love that as well. And so what happens is that Mando is able to get the door shut on the dark troopers almost, almost. But one of them gets his hand on the door and forces it open and comes out. And then Mando has to go toe-to-toe with just one dark trooper. So from a writing point of view, if you notice, there's no dialogue in that scene. So this is another example of a brilliant writing, show, don't tell. We get to see firsthand just how tough these dark troopers are and how hard they are to stop. Uh, we also get to see how cool that Beskar armor, that Beskar spear is again. And we get to see it in a very visceral, incredible way. And also, the hero, the protagonist, is in real danger. It's not fake danger. It's not assumed danger. It's not cheesy or cringe. It's very, very real, which is another sign of good writing. It keeps us in the moment. And so Mando basically uses uh, everything he has, everything he has against the Dark Trooper, and it doesn't really do any more than temporarily slow him down every time until he can get close enough to jam that best car spear right through his neck. 
that's the only reason he beat him. The only reason he beat him. And then Mando blows the rest of them out of the airlock. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, nope. No way that's the end of them. They can fly. So that's temporary. But anyway, so let me hear your thoughts about the plan and putting the Imperial ship in the TIE fighter port, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, the girls get it done seeing all the fighting and Mando facing off with the dark trooper. Uh, start with Nemesis. Well, first off, uh, when I saw, I did like the plan and I liked them going into, to land in the, the TIE fighter port. But the minute I saw that scene, I was like somewhere in somewhere with, involved with Battlestar Galactica is getting ready to sue the hell out of Disney right now. So that's what I thought. Um, but I very much liked the fight with the Dark Trooper for the simple reason that um, it provided stakes. You know, we know how good a fighter Din Djarin is. And so to see him struggling with this dark trooper and barely survive and have to pull everything out. I mean, to actually have to fight tooth and nail to just, you know, save his own life. He, he didn't win that fight so much as survive. That's basically what he did. Really gives a sense of stakes for Din Djarin but later on in the episode, it gives even further stakes to what the collected group is facing when those uh, dark troopers return. So that heightens the tension even more. And then, as if this character needed it anyway, it gives you even greater appreciation for how powerful and how skilled a fighter Luke Skywalker is when he vanquishes them. So that one scene set up the rest of the episode and the arcs for all of the characters in the episode, even characters we didn't even know were coming, perfectly. And so that is what you're talking about when you're mentioning great writing, and uh, it, it ties everything together. So this one clear example of you know, against a fixed point, which is Din Djarin, we already know how good a fighter is, showing how outclassed he was, set the table for everything that came after it. And, it, and it's deliberate. Because those of us who know the writing code, we know it's deliberate. We know who wrote this episode knew what they wanted to do with this scene, and they did it well. So congratulations. Agree completely. It was a table setter. Go ahead, Steve. Thoughts on all that? Yeah, uh, this was a really great sequence. I mean, really, and I'm going to be saying that a lot because all of these are really great sequences, but uh, when you really talk about, like, the plan, I mean, the plan is pretty solid. I mean, I, I can't really have any issues with that. Um, I will kind of get into Boba Fett a little bit. Um, and uh, it's really clear, like, they had to get him out of the way so that he doesn't meet Luke Skywalker at the end, as cool as that would be. Um, I think that they wanted to get Boba out of the situation just so that there aren't um, a whole scene where you have Luke and, and Boba trying to figure out, hey, why are you with these guys? Um, you know, what, should I be fighting you or not? Uh, so, they, so, yeah, they had to get rid of Boba somehow. 
but the way that they did it, I thought made sense. Okay, yeah, he's flying on the ship, and you know he's uh, providing, um, shall we say, evidence uh, for the ruse that they're pulling to get in in the vape. Uh, so yeah, that's really really well done. Um, I do have a feeling that Bob Gideon suspected that this was uh, Mando's group all along. Uh, and he's just kind of like going with emotions because it's part of his plan. Uh, he's luring them into a trap. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to see the wheels turning on both sides, even if it's not explicit. Um, as Gideon says, assume that I know everything. Um, and, and as much as, you know, I know that that bothers you, DT, villains that are omniscient. I think in this particular case, uh, Gideon comes across as genuinely smart, and he doesn't necessarily come across as somebody who's unreasonably omniscient. You know, the, the, the leaps that he's coming to are based on evidence. We see that this is Slave 1 flying towards, towards them. It's not um, unreasonable to assume that Mando is part of this mission uh, from Gideon's point of view. So I really kind of like that whole thing. Um, the girls get it done scene. Yeah, I was, you know, one of those things where, you know, if you're really kind of paying attention to the code, maybe you might roll your eyes. I really didn't so much um, just because these female characters um, are really good characters for the most part, uh, particularly Kara, Bo-Katan, and Fennec. Um, all of these characters we like seeing and we enjoy watching them. And we enjoy watching them uh, kill all these stormtroopers and, you know, fighting their way to the bridge in these big dramatic scenes. Um, all of that really worked. Um, the fight with Mando and the dark trooper, uh, like you guys were saying, was really well done. And, and I will say that um, as far as the dark trooper goes, I love the way that they build the threat of these characters or these villains, um, especially with the idea that the mission is not about winning or losing. It is about surviving long enough for Luke Skywalker to show up because we know at this point um, that the Jedi, that's that the Jedi they was called is going to come. We don't necessarily know at this point that it's Luke, but you know, even so you're kind of wondering, you know, the, the the set, the scene is being set for that big final battle between Luke and all these dark troopers and everything is just pitch perfect. Um, it's, it's, it's Swiss watch level uh, design um, the way that they build all of this. Um, and I have to say, the idea that the Beskar um, makes the big difference in this fight um, really, really is good. And the way they show it by showing that the Dark Trooper is not getting through the helmet. Um, because as hard as the Dark Trooper beats on Mando's face, you know, it should be caving in uh, the helmet if it were made of anything but Beskar. So I like that little subtle hint. And you know at that point it's like, okay, he's got to get the lance. Uh, to, to get this thing. So it, uh, all of this works as a really good sense of foreshadowing. Um, and I will say probably uh, as a guess uh, about the Dark Troopers, I am guessing that the Dark Troopers are probably built from Durasteel, which is what uh, Starship hulls are made of. And that's why it is tough, but not Beskar tough. Um, it had to be something like that. I really would not be surprised if it's either uh, Durasteel or some like carbon Durasteel variant. Um, if it's that tough. And, and the fact that it is that tough uh, really makes these uh, robots um, nasty, Terminator-like, as you were saying. Uh, it's also good. Cool. All that makes sense. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing the Dark Troopers weren't made out of stolen Beskar or Frick metal, because that would have been bad for the end of the show as well. Although I have, I have faith that our boy Luke could have still done something with it. Uh, so yeah, you guys have really, uh, Nemesis especially really touched on the, the main thing about like the, the ascendancy of the threat, the setting of the table as it were, because 
you know, we've had all these seasons to see just how capable a Mandalorian is. And when you show that he's just getting tossed around by a baby by this thing, it, it kind of reminds me of the uh, a more overt case of how the menace was built up with Darth Vader. You know, in the first movie, you see him uh, kill a guy with one hand. He lifts him off the floor, and he does his little force choke just to, just to get a little give you a little taste, and he has a sword fight with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And so it built up all this anticipation for, like, the second film when he and Luke had his real showdown. You really got to appreciate the power of what Darth Vader actually brought to the table. And so here you're thinking, like, oh, my God, he just barely survived fighting one of these things, and there's at least 20 in that bay. What are these guys going to do, even with this entire crew? And so just the just the anticipation factor, and that's the sort of thing you want. You know, talk about uh, the writing code, building that anticipation for the expected climax, because now it's not just stakes for Mandalorian. We've seen how he barely survived a fight with one of these things, and they've got a couple of dozen of these things to get through. And as, as, as tough as all these characters have been established to be, you know by the end of it they've got absolutely no chance. Uh, the setup... Uh, like yourself, DT, I like characters who are smart, especially if they're shown to be smart. I like them acting smart, acting tactically. We've all had our issues with Mando sometimes for plot convenience, acting a little dumb here and there. Uh, but that doesn't happen in this episode. The the plot to get in there is really good. Uh, the taking out of the, the TIE fighter base, only a couple of TIE fighters managed to get off before uh, Boba Fett uh, really does some great piloting and destroys them. I love... I love the cans flipping back to shoot from behind him. I, I love uh, really funky special ships in Star Wars. I saw like one of the one of my favorites is the B wing fighter, and uh, Slave One is like my my top favorite. And uh, it's it's also fun to see that the Mandalorians are not just expert fighters, but they're also expert pilots because we've seen Din Djarin with his uh you know supposedly clunky razor crest uh, razor crest take out. Uh, nimble fighters like TIE fighters himself in really wonderfully aerobatic maneuvers. So it's really cool to see that sort of thing because we we very rarely gotten to see what Slave One can do. We got a little bit in the prequels, and it was nice to see a little bit more, and I'm looking for more of that in the book of Boba Fett as well. And as far as the girls get it done, that one didn't bother me at all, especially because, once again, I like seeing the Mandalorians uh, do Mandalorian things as, as, uh, as Finnick, and uh, Bo-Katan are running across the, uh, or Finnick and Caradine are running across the uh, the bridge. One of those uh, one of those endless bridges with with no guardrails because Star Wars does not believe in guardrails. How they how they how the Mandos fly out the bridge and when the stormtroopers appear, you know they just pop up and flank them. Love that maneuver. That was so great. I love three dimensional combat like that. So I can't get enough of that stuff. But. Uh, you know, you guys have already said everything else. That, uh, everything else is really relevant, relevant about the scene. All right, cool. All right, we're moving down to the big Kahuna. Okay, and so <clears throat> what we find out later on is that Mando is uh, uh, confronts Moff Gideon, but not where we thought he'd be actually confronts him and Moff Gideon is threatening Grogu with the Darksaber. I believe that uh, Moff Gideon would kill Grogu, but I did believe he'd hurt him. I just think Grogu has proven to be too valuable 
in terms of what they're doing. I really didn't think he would take him out, but anybody with a lightsaber doesn't have a problem cutting off a limb or two. So I thought he was going to maim Grogu and not take him out. And Mando obviously didn't want to see anything happen to them. And it again speaks to the father-son bond that they've built. And I'll repeat, that's been the heart of the show. That's show at this point. That very bond. So Gideon tells Mando that he can have him, but he's got to leave and blah, blah, blah. I'm screaming at, at, at the, the TV. I'm like, no, it's a trap. It's a trap. Don't believe him. Don't trust him. He's going to double cross. He's double cross. I'm like, please don't tell me, Mando, you really believe he's just going to let you walk away. So, of course, he doesn't. The thing about lightsabers are they're not about subtlety because you can hear them. You can hear them when they ignite, and you can hear them when they swing through the air. But even when they're standing still, you can just hear the buzz from their energy. So, of course, Gideon attacks Mando. And once again, the armor, that Beskar armor comes through, man. Comes through the and uh, they go toe-to-toe. Now, I firmly believe if Moff Gideon had had 10 more minutes, he would have finished Mando. Every time I thought Mando was going to get the upper hand, Moff Gideon came swinging back, which also made me wonder, and you guys can address this for you, does Moff Gideon have, I don't know from the other uh, incarnations, uh, does he have force powers? Is he force sensitive? Does he have any type of Sith involvement? Uh, has he developed any? Because he's too good and too quick. If you know anything about Star Wars lore, you know that the only reason Jedi are supposed to be the only ones that can really handle life and because of the fact that they can see into the future, okay, which is why, you know, the sequel trilogy just blows all that to crap. But anyway, so I uh, didn't know enough about Moff Gideon at this point to know if that was the case because I'm like, he's handling that Darksaber like someone that has some little level of Jedi Sith training or some type of force some type of something because fighting well with it. Said and I didn't see all of other incarnations, so I wasn't sure, so maybe uh, Steve talked about uh, I definitely want you guys to talk about that because I was amazed at how well he fought. And I'm like, eh, there's some force uh, ability at work there in some kind of way, I thought, because that was an extreme amount of skill for something as dangerous as a Darksaber. But, uh, so anyway, I thought he was going to take Mando. I really did. <clears throat> but Mando did the smart thing, got in close enough, and separated him from the Darksaber. That was the right thing to do. The most chilling thing that Mark is, is that Grogu's blood to help create basically super soldier Jedi or super soldier force sensitives that work for the Empire is the best shot to bring order back to the galaxy. So the plan here is to take dark troopers, force sensitive, uh, uh, troops fire and retake everything. Sign was changing my point of view. So let me uh, hear you guys' thoughts about that fight. Start with Bracey. Okay. Um, 
here's the thing. I don't know anything about Moff Gideon uh, outside the context of the show, but I do know this about Star Wars lore. Uh, there is a martial art developed for people who want to be able to contend with people who are Force-sensitive. It's called Terakazi. Uh, you get to see an example of that, actually, in Solo, as far as, like, canon movies. Uh, Solo's love interest and uh, Paul Bettany, who played the uh, the crime overlord, were both masters of uh, Terakazi. And so you see them doing some uh, some pretty cool kung fu flippity-foo in, uh, in the course of the uh, climax of that film. So uh, it's quite possible that Moff Gideon has, uh, has trained extensively in this art, uh, knowing that he might need an edge against uh, somebody with unusual abilities from time to time. Because uh, he's obviously done a lot of research on people of the Force, if he's able to get a hold of uh, uh, somebody like Grogu and figure out how to contain him. Uh, we had wondered if those manacles were going to be able to contain his Force power. And, so, uh, and maybe it's because he's a youngling. Apparently they have some sort of, I would guess, uh, some sort of neural uh, stimulator that's uh, interfering with uh, maybe nerve impulses to keep him from actually uh, accentuating the Force through his body. Uh, I do agree that Moff Gideon would likely maim the child. He's too valuable to just outright kill. And like yourself, uh, there is no way Din Djarin should have ever turned his back on Moff Gideon, no matter how charming and reasonable he seems. We all know better than that. I would also like to point out one very interesting thing I noticed in the course of the fight. Now, we've seen how tough Beskar is just a scene ago. We've also seen how tough it is with Ahsoka. It, it handily stood up to uh, lightsabers, and not only that, it, it stood up to lightsabers pressed against it for a number of seconds. And we've seen how the Beskar spear uh, handled uh, taking lightsaber blows. Now, something to notice about the Darksaber, we all know it's got its own particular sound and its own particular shape. Uh, I've, uh, you know, if you guys have seen it in Rebels or Clone Wars, because I haven't seen it, and, and admittedly I haven't seen all of both series, I've never seen the Darksaber used to deflect a blaster bolt. So I'm wondering if this particular shape is used for a cutting advantage, if it acts a little bit more like a traditional sword, because I noticed whenever it came in contact with the spear, when they get into the bind, unlike when Ahsoka's blades were in contact with the spear, uh, I didn't see anything going on. But when the Darksaber is in contact with the spear, you can clearly see the spear heating up. Now, I know they said the Darksaber could cut through anything except pure Beskar, and we've yeah. been told that the spear is pure Beskar, but I can't help but wonder if that, fine edge, if that blade shape to the Darksaber gives it an advantage at the cost of being able to deflect blaster bolts, gives it an advantage that might eventually allow it to cut through a material even as tough as a Beskar or perhaps even Frick metal. Wow. Wow. But yeah, your point is well taken that you can really see it heating up against <clears throat> the Beskar spear heating up against the Darksaber below. And I thought it was going to cut through at some point. I really did. Uh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, as far as this scene, it was really, really well done. And I have to say, I really love how smart uh, Moff Gideon comes across in all of this. Because uh, you, you, you can see the wheels turning in his head. And I will say that 
Giancarlo Esposito is amazing in this episode. Uh, the way that he taunts uh, Din Djarin. I mean, everything that he's doing, you know, makes sense. And he has framed everything so that no matter what happens, he wins. And I love uh, plans like that uh, because he's not really necessarily trying to get Mando to um, – well, he's trying to get Mando to beat him, but that's kind of like the secondary thing. If he beats Mando here, then, you know, okay, everything's cool and, and I've got control of everything. If Mando beats me, which is what happens, um, I also have a way where I get out ahead. I love that kind of thinking from a villain. And you could definitely see that all this stuff is in uh, Gideon's mind the whole time. Um, and, yeah, I have to say, yeah, Din Djarin turning his back to Moff Gideon at any time is a mistake. You know, the idea that, that this guy is going to ever keep his word uh, is, is ridiculous, and, and Din should have known that. But maybe he's too concerned with the child and getting the child back uh, that it, he's maybe not thinking in that moment. Uh, so I'm kind of willing to, to let that go. But I will say this. I really got the feeling that uh, Gideon was uh, just trying to provoke Mando with that hit rather than actually kill him. Because I, my feeling is that if he really wanted to kill him, uh, he probably would have found like some kind of area, weak spot in the Beskar armor, and just slid the thing in there. Um, he could have just maybe have found some, some weakness in the suit. No, he just slammed the back of the Beskar armor like right in the armor. I'm like, yeah, you're taunting him and you are provoking him because you are trying to set up the, 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 the outcome that you want, which is no matter who wins... Uh, you know, you you lose. Um, so all of this is like part of that whole whole scheme. No, I don't think he would have killed Grogu either. That also is part of you know luring Mando there, and also luring Mando into fighting him um, for the for the dark saber. Uh, so all of this really kind of makes sense, and everything about it, this whole scene works on multiple levels. Uh, when you think in terms of what Gideon's plan is, uh, that's really uh, that really worked. As far as Gideon's skill level, we've seen that there are plenty of people uh, who have trained to fight Jedi and are not Force-sensitive. Uh, we saw that with Morgan going up against uh, Ahsoka, Morgan Elspeth. Uh, so as that's, that's just one like canon example. We've seen General Grievous, uh, even though he's a robot, I mean, the fact is, is that he still has enough skill to use uh, these lightsabers uh, without that. So we definitely have seen also, and also Sabine Wren, uh, learned to use Darksaber from uh, Kanan Jarrus, uh, who was a Jedi. So Jedi, or maybe a Sith, uh, may ha or some Sith Inquisitor or something, could have trained uh, him in this kind of fencing. Uh, maybe Darth Vader did. Maybe Palpatine did. Uh, we just don't know. I mean, we, we know that this guy's been around uh, with the Empire a long time, and he's in a position of high authority within the Empire. I mean, he was a moth. So it's very possible that he could have gotten training uh, to fight uh, from somebody that, you know, knew how to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm willing to kind of go along with that. Or maybe it was Teres Kasi, as uh, Jeff has been pointing out. That's also plausible. Um, either, way, I don't, uh, either way, yeah, he had to have learned some skills from somewhere uh, because he's very, very good. Uh, we definitely see that. And I think it is very possible that had the fight gone longer, um, you know, maybe Mando could have lost. Um, you know, Mando definitely earns that victory uh, against uh, Gideon, and, and it is satisfying to see that. But I just love how uh, the whole time um, Gideon looks like he's in control and it's believable, and it doesn't come across as him being overly omniscient. Everything just, uh, just it, everything is just fun to watch, um, and you can definitely see uh, Gideon as a villain really shining through the whole time. 
And that's all very interesting about Trump. That actually makes sense. And um, uh, he was just, it was uh, a tour de force showcase of everything that Gideon could do with the Darksaber. So I, I thought it was incredible. Uh, go ahead, Nemesis. Yeah, I, I think that everybody has really hit on a lot of the points, although I think I want to highlight a couple things. Um, one, as far as uh, Moff Gideon's fighting ability, I mean, he was with the Empire Intelligence Services all that time, and I very much think Steve's point uh, has a lot of merit to it, and, and Jeff's point as well, but I, I think Steve's I kind of lean towards what he was hinting at, which is, the Empire Intelligence Service was tasked with hunting down all these enemies of the Republic or the Empire, and some of those had to have been rogue Jedi. And so it, to me, it is very much within the realm of possibility that he would have learned these fencing techniques from an Inquisitor. Um, that's the prime person I see teaching him something of that, to in order, if he ever came up against a Jedi, that he'd at least have a fighting chance. That said, I think that it's clear that he had the, the fencing techniques down and could hold his own against the Mandalorian. But I think as the next scene we're going to get to or eventually get to what Luke shows, that if he were to go up against a trained Jedi, Jedi have advantages in speed, uh, foresight, and everything else uh, that would nullify any of his training and probably make the fight rather short and one-sided. So, you know, that's kind of where I come down on his fighting ability, taking nothing away from, uh, you know, his actual skill that was on display and the fact that, you know, Jim Collar Esposito really got into it, you know. Like he told his daughters, he was going to kill that little bastard. So, you know, I, I, I really believe that. Um, as far as the overall plan and what happened and, and Mando turning his back, I also agree with Steve and Jeff and all you guys on this in that I think, Right up until the moment that uh, Moff Gideon realizes that Luke Skywalker is on his ship, that he thinks he's in control of the situation. And I think that he thinks he's going to win. Because he's already so dissent. By, by losing this fight, he has so dissent between Bo-Katan and uh, Din Djarin. And if nothing else, that's buying him time. Time for his dark troopers to get back on the ship. Time for them to make their way to the bridge. And eventually, time enough for them, while they're divided, to get wiped out. And then, if that had happened, if a Jedi hadn't shown up, and ultimately that Jedi is Luke, then Moff Gideon would have rode off into the sunset with Grogu in his possession and, you know, the fate of Star Wars universe would have been much different. So I think that Moff Gideon really knows what he's doing the whole time. And every little bit of time he bought uh, was precious for him. And the, the dissension, you know, and the actual simmering tension between Bo-Katan and Din Djarin could do nothing but help him in that situation. And I think he knew it, which is really a masterstroke on Moff Gideon's part, and once again from the writing. I keep saying it, but this was just an excellently written episode, and there was some lair and some thought to a villain not doing a stereotypical villain thing, but instead being a master manipulator and master planner. 
in the vein of a Lex Luthor when he's written well. So kudos. Very much so. All right. Uh, So now we've got to move on to uh, the big kahuna. And uh, the prelude to the big kahuna is that once Mando beats Moff Gideon, uh, Bo-Katan, according to Codes of Honor, can't accept the Darksaber because the Darksaber cannot be surrendered. It has to be won in combat. And uh, one of you guys said that was Moff's whole point in baiting and attacking Mando was to still keep the Darksaber out of the hands of Bo-Katan. So in case Moff Gideon lost, but like you said, he thought he was in control up until Luke showed up, Bo-Katan still wouldn't get that saber. So again, he didn't know what he was doing. If you remember a couple of podcasts ago, though, I said that I was going to bring this point up when we got to the end because Mando had a problem with Boba Fett claiming that armor. And he said that Boba didn't have a right to the armor and, you know, he wasn't a real Mandalorian because of whatever reasons. And then Boba finally breaks it down about his heritage and his lineage and the dues he paid. And and Mando finally relents. I thought that was really funny in that it seems that Mando doesn't understand that same code (laughs) he was exhibiting now that it's time for Bo-Katan to take the Darksaber. She won't take it. And then Gideon says the Darksaber doesn't have any power, but the story does. I'm saying to myself, uh, who would know besides the people in that room? But maybe that's just it. Maybe she wanted all of them to believe she was the rightful leader of Mandalore as well. I mean, if she had taken the saber, would would Casca have turned against her? Would Cara Dune have turned against her? What would have happened if she had just taken it? That's what I was wondering. I mean, you know, would that really have stopped her chances from retaking Mandalore like she wanted to? But Gideon said the power is all in the story. So I don't know. And before we get a chance to really see if she's going to relent, the dark troopers are back. But that felt like a very important point to me, so I want to talk about it. So what do you think about Mando trying to turn the Darksaber over to Bo-Katan and her she didn't really say anything, but Moff Gideon explained what was going on. Do you think she should have just taken it and still held up the legend of the saber, or did she really need to really win it? Would she have fought Mando for it? Like, you know, what do you think? Let me hear those thoughts. Uh, start with Nemesis. Yeah, I, I, I really buy it. I put a lot of stock in this. I think it makes a lot of sense for me. Um, I'm trying to come up with a real-world example, and I'm kind of struggling right now, but this idea that in a warrior culture where the symbol, the story means more, I think it holds a lot of water. And, yes, you know, Casca uh, and, um, you know, whoever, you know, Din Djarin was there. Sure, she could hope that they wouldn't say anything, but look at it from her perspective and how tenuous a leader is on Mandalore anyway. And it's built on strength and a claim to rule, the right to rule. It's almost like the divine will to rule from, you know, the medieval rulers. Once that myth is shattered, you know, 
because it gets out through rumor or whisper or somebody stabs you in the back, once that myth and your sense of you know, inevitability for ruling is shattered, then the knives come out for you and your hold on power is gone. And for someone like Bo-Katan, who seems to be not only a great warrior, but she seems to be the consummate mover, shaker, politician among Mandalorians, you know, a power broker, having a, that sort of vulnerability, that chink in her armor would be unheard, you know, unthinkable. It, you just couldn't let it happen. So, you know, I could see her doing one of two things, depending on what you want to do with the character. Either she refuses to take it or she takes it, and anybody who knows how she got it, which was not the way you're supposed to get it, ends up dying. She kills them. It's one or the other, you know. So that that's the way I see it. So to me, I really think that that was excellently written and excellently done. It makes a lot of sense to me. That's a, that's a really good angle because she would have had to take everybody out in that room. Go ahead, Steve. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to go with Nemesis on this, and I'm going to add a, a few things. I, don't, I think that uh, probably Gideon accounted for this. Why am I saying this? Because every room in that entire ship is being monitored by security cameras. I would not be surprised if it's all recorded. I would not be surprised if Gideon had arranged to have the thing beamed uh, somewhere, uh, maybe an Imperial outpost or, or something that would publish this if it was contested. I do not think that, that Gideon would not have planned for that, um, especially since we know to what extent he has planned all of this already and the fact that we know that the entire ship is being recorded or, or at least monitored. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think he would have anticipated that thought and would have uh, said no. And I think maybe uh, Bogotan on some level might have been aware of it, although I think she did it out of her own sense of honor. So, yeah, I buy this. Um, this whole thing about the sword, um, I, I do think that uh, to a certain extent is a little bit of something that they retconned in. It's not quite in line with what we've seen in Rebels, for example. Um, but I think it kind of works because Sabine found the, the blade. Like, she just found it. Um, and, and she just claimed it uh, because she had found it. Um, and that's fine. Uh, I think as far as the power of the story, uh, the best example I can think of that uh, kind of connects it is the idea of Excalibur. Um, this is a the sword that represents the right to rule uh, all England, whoever pulls the sword from the stone. Mando pulled the sword from the stone without realizing that he pulled it. Um, so now he is king whether he likes it or not. Um, and I just like this idea that, you know, Bookstan saying, nope, you, you earned it by right of honor. I'm not going to challenge you. Um, and I love this for one reason because neither of them are in a position that they want to be in. Uh, Mando does not want to rule Mandalore, and uh, Bo-Katan does not want to be the person who has to support him. <laughs> you know, she wants to be queen. Um, and, and I just love that, you know, these, these characters are all in a position where they don't want to be in because they're all bound by this code of honor that Mop Gideon has manipulated them into conforming to to get the outcome that he wanted and they know it and they all hate it. And, and I think that that's a brilliant piece of writing. I just absolutely love the way that they had set that up. So, yeah, I would say, um, I think it makes sense that they, they set it up like this. I think it makes sense um, that this story would have power. Um, you know, it, it is a case of, you know, strange women lying in ponds or serving in swords is no basis for a system of government, but, um, I, and the way that they had set it up, I mean, this, this is a, this is a series 
that has always been about mythic roots, uh, and, and, and you can't get any more mythic than Excalibur and King Arthur, and I just love uh, the way that they, they set all of this up in a modern context. That's a really, really, really good point. Really good point. Go ahead, Bracey. Violence inherent in the system. Yeah, well, you know, it, it does work because uh, let's look at the first Star Wars. It's sci-fantasy. We've got, a, we've got a young lad who gets a magic sword from an old wizard, and he's going to go rescue a princess from a, from a black knight in a, in a fortress stronghold. It, it all works, so. Uh, with that in mind, because you guys have really covered the uh, the meat of the, the characterization part, uh, I'm going to address what some people might feel like is a retcon or a loophole in terms of uh, Rebels. Uh, Sabine finding the Darksaber is fine. You know, uh, it is a Mandalorian artifact as well as a Jedi artifact, and it is uh, unique to a Mandalorian. There's no lightsaber anywhere close to the Darksaber, so... Uh, Mandalorians by heritage would want to claim it and you know uh, finding an artifact and you're the one who found it uh, it's all good that you get to use it now she uh, willingly passes it on to Bo-Katan as she sees her as the leader of Mandalore that is also fine uh, Sabine did not want to be leader of Mandalore she had no uh, no desire to be leader of Mandalore and she rightfully saw that Bo-Katan had the will and the charisma to pull that sort of thing off. So it's okay for a knight, per se, to uh, bequeath a righteous gift upon their king or queen. Uh, that all works within that whole medieval lore again. The problem here for Bo-Katan is, and this unfortunately hasn't been shown, but we get the idea this is what happened, because she is so driven to fight Moff Gideon herself over and over again. She makes that point. Moff Gideon somehow won the Darksaber from her. Why can't she accept the Darksaber from Din Djarin as she did from Sabine? Because the Saber was won from her. She now has to overcome the holder of the Darksaber in order to have that place of a, of a, of a regality, of authority in the Mandalorian culture. So uh, by losing that opportunity, uh, she can't just accept it from Din Djarin, you know. And you see her looking at that thing like a starving person looking at a steak. She wants it so bad. And Katie Sackhoff, like, just the, the acting on her face is so good. You know, she's, she's like a junkie looking at that thing. And, and poor Pedro Pascal is like, come on, man, just take it. I don't care. I don't want this thing. Uh, great scene between the two of them. But because of this, in the eyes of Mandalore, even if it's just one other Mandalorian, even if it's just Casca, there is that knowledge out there. She can't just go home to Mandalore or wherever her, uh, her particular sect of Mandalorians are because somebody knows. And even if it's just that one Mandalorian, eventually the story gets out. And if it's some Machiavellian thing, like, uh, and I hadn't thought about this, Steve, that's a brilliant idea, that Moff Gideon might have been uh, uh, shooting that broadcast out to, uh, you know, someplace to be released at a later time. Hey, hey, check this out. They got 40,000 retweets. Uh, that's, that's completely applicable in the, uh, the context of a super genius bad guy, Moff Gideon. But uh, so now, like, she has no legitimate claim to the throne within the constraints of the culture and the mythology that they have set up for themselves as Mandalorians. And so she's trapped. She's totally trapped, and I think that uh, uh, that explanation might help plug up any uh, 
loopholes or retcons that uh, the viewers might see out there. Definitely great explanation. All right, we are finally at, and don't forget there's a post-credit scene, but we are finally at pretty much what we agree is the point of this whole episode. So we see the dark troopers basically line up. They're going to pound their way in. The doors are closed. The blast doors are closed, and they just line up, and they're going to beat them down. Now, I don't know if everybody recognizes the visceral nature of watching that. They did that a lot in uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles, the Terminator stuff. But watching that happen, your, your mind, your brain kind of feels those blows. It's too visceral of, ex of an experience for your mind to ignore. And so that the very pounding of those doors and the smirk on Gideon's face tells you basically that defeat is coming. And it's coming, you know, in a very real way. And they were going to go out valiantly. They were going to go out fighting. They were definitely going to go down swinging, but they were definitely going to go down. And then all of a sudden, we get that beep, and we see there's an X-Wing flying in. And Carl's like, one X-Wing? Great. And then we see a hooded figure disembark, and he starts mowing down the dark troopers. Okay, he starts eating them up like 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 a Vienna-style Chicago hot dog on a hot summer day. <laughs> and he's just going to town. Then we see the green of the lightsaber. Then we see the gloved hand still not seeing his face. We see all kind of Jedi action. We see Jedi reflexes. <clears throat> we see lightsaber action. We see force throws, force blocks, force levitation and then a force crush at the end, which is just an extended version of the force choke. And it's just one of the best sequences. It's right up there with Darth Vader's sequence in Rogue One. And they probably mimicked it or mirrored it after that kind of sequence to show father and son, to show what they can do. And Luke just plows through the man, and if you've watched any of the videos, you saw the people that were watching that when Luke takes off his hood, everybody cheers. Um, and some people uh, were critical of the deep fake CGI. Uh, I was like, I don't care. Yes, his lips look funny when they move. It looks just like Clue looked in Tron Legacy. Yes, you can tell it's, you know, CGI fakery and a DH Mark Hamill, but that really was Mark. And he really was doing that scene, and that really was his voice, and him doing the action, except for when some people did it. And I just thought it was brilliant. It's a testimony to the fact that Favreau and Filoni know exactly what Star Wars is, what it isn't, what the fans want to see, how to make it relevant to the people that still care. And it was just great. Now, I've watched tons of videos from some of my favorite YouTubers who said that this really didn't matter, it wasn't enough to say Star Wars and all that different kind of stuff. I honestly am more of the enjoy the moment mindset when it comes to this. It was just a high point in Star Wars. Whatever happens after this, this will always be remembered as just a monumental high point. I've watched that scene over and over and over again, as I'm sure everybody that loves it has. And I like it. I wanted more. I want to see <laughs> We want to see Luke do more because this is the Luke Skywalker we've been waiting on since the return of the Jedi. 
fully realized, fully in control of his Jedi powers, calm, cool, collected, yet unstoppable. And I, you know, I cannot rave enough about this scene. And then we go into the scene they've been teasing for several episodes, but it finally happens, and that's the separation between Mando and Grogu. Now, in this instance, I can see why Pedro Pascal would fight to take his helmet off. Because this scene does not carry the same emotional weight if you can't see Mando's face. This, however, is the only time I would have had him take his helmet off all season long. Just a writing choice. Because it would have heightened the impact as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I wouldn't have had him, you know, put him in that situation in the Bill Barr episode. We talked about that. But uh, Grogu is checking with Mando, basically asking him permission, can I go? Can I leave you? Can we separate? Is it safe? Is this okay? Is this a thing to do? And it was just so poignant and so touching. And you have to have no heart to not be moved by that. And so we see Luke carry Grogu off and... We also got a surprise visit from R2, and that was great seeing R2 come out of the shadows and get all excited, and it was, just, it was just a moment, and it was a throwback to Empire when we first meet uh, Yoda, because when we first meet Yoda, it's Luke and R2. So, I mean, this was everything a Star Wars fan could have wanted because the Skywalker family is Star Wars, Luke, Leia, and Vader. They are Star Wars. The original movie was about the the galactic conflict, but Empire Strikes Back made it be about the Skywalkers. So like it or not, that's the truth of what happened. So Luke, Leia, and Vader are Star Wars, no matter what people say. So I have nothing but good things to say about this scene. The send-off was just so touching. Uh, Everybody standing there watching him leave, Feeling the weight of the moment, Tara, Finnick, Bo-Katan, you know, it was just great. It was just great. And I've watched it over and over and over again. And like I said, it really is the end of the Mando that we knew. The next time we see him, it's going to be something different. So give me your thoughts on this. We've been waiting for months to talk about this. So let her rip. You got ranch, you got race, whatever you got. I want to hear it. Start with Nemesis. Yeah. Um, all right. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't want to take up all the oxygen in the room, so I'm just going to kind of start and throw in my two cents, and then I definitely want to, I, I want to take a couple shots at a couple things uh, that I've seen out there. But starting off with that scene where the X-Wing comes in, and right away – you know, I, I was watching this, and I see that single X-Wing come in, and I had an inkling who was going to be in this episode anyway from reading different things, but to see that, I was out of my chair. And then to see that, that flash of green and that dark cloaked figure, I was up out of my, on my feet yelling at the TV saying, get it, son, get it, while I was watching Luke <laughs> mount just mow down dark troopers. I was going ape shit. Excuse my language, but I was. That's how excited I was for that. I was just going crazy. I mean, and, 
And I could go into tons of over-analysis from a Star Wars fan perspective about, you know, what are the implications of a using force choke and everything. And to be honest with you, right now, I just don't want to do it because I just want you all to understand how much that meant to me and meant to all of us who are old school Star Wars fans because we have never really gotten true Luke Skywalker Jedi action on screen. We saw some of it in Return of the Jedi. We saw some of it in Empire. But we only got glimpses here and there. And here is Luke Skywalker Jedi Knight fighting. And we see him. I mean, he's not even at the peak of his abilities yet, but he's powerful now. And to see him do that, I have been waiting a long time. And to their credit, Favreau and Filoni gave me the drug I didn't know I needed. And boy, was it just wonderful. Um, So then let's fast forward to him taking off the hood. All right, this is going to be a little mini rant. I don't want to go on a long rant, but it's going to be a little mini rant. And I think, DT, what you said is absolutely right, which was if if you didn't have some tears in your eyes during this whole thing and when Grogu was asked for permission to leave, then, then you don't have a soul. Well, I think that if you are constantly watching things, and this does not apply just the Mandalorian. This is, this is me. I'm sending the shot out across the bow, and this has been building up for a while, but this is about everything, every single thing. You can have your critiques of stuff, but if the first time you watch something, and people, I mean, literally on the first viewing, within minutes of the episode coming out, people are criticizing this, the CGI and stuff. If that is how you're watching stuff, to always pick out the little details that you want to bitch and complain and be a hater about, then God bless you. You know, bless your heart, but there's something wrong with you. There's something broken. There really is. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry if that offends anyone, and I really don't care. Because, yeah, was there, were there some problems with it? Absolutely. Going back, I've watched it, you know, 40, 50 times now. And I'll be honest, I'd look at it. Yeah, there are things that could have been done better things that people did better. Same thing with the Carrie Fisher stuff in, in Rogue One. But the minute I first saw Carrie Fisher on there, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, it's Leia. I was elated. I was excited. Later on, could I look at it from a critic standpoint and give you a, a criticism of it? Of course I could. But if your first inclination is to look at this stuff and just pick it apart, then, then, you, then you need to look in the mirror and really reexamine because – your whole purpose for looking at this stuff, there's something broken with you. Because you're not watching it to enjoy, you're watching it to be an asshole. Sorry, but that's the truth, you know? So that that's just my shot across the bow to everyone, you know? It's like it, criticism and trying to make things better and, and everything else is perfectly fine. But if you're watching stuff the first time just to find flaws and to bitch about it, then you know, maybe, maybe you need to, to not watch this stuff. You know, go find something that you really enjoy. So, you know, that's my little mini rant, and uh, I'll get off my soapbox now. Um, the Grogu stuff just tugged on my heartstrings. It, it took me right back to every moment that I dropped my kids off at school for the first time and watched them walk away to go with their teacher. You know, every parent knows that moment. Um, 
you know, you watch your kid walk off to go into class and they wave goodbye to you and you're just like, you know, you're sniffing and choking back the tears and grown men are, you know, suddenly dust is in the air everywhere, you know, <laughs> so it, it, it is definitely that feeling and I had it and, uh, you know, I'm just going to leave it there. I don't want to take a ton of time because I know that my fellow co-hosts have plenty they want to add as well, but like I said at the very beginning, what did I, what did, this was me as a kid. This was me with all the feels. This was the magic of Star Wars on so many levels, bringing all of that together. So now I'm a 49-year-old man, and I've taken all of my experiences as a father and as a man and as a child, and it all came back with a wave of nostalgia and feels and everything else through this episode, and it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. It was magical. So thank you to them for that. If you didn't enjoy watching this, you need to go do something else. I love that. <laughs> if you just watched it to pick out stuff to complain about, then there's something broken inside of you. I love that. I'm down with all that. I agree completely. Uh, we're all detailed. We're all critical. We all can do writer's code. But when they get it right, man, they get it right. And when it's done right, it just speaks on so many different levels. And if you can't enjoy all the people that were against Luke Skywalker making a triumphant entrance and complained about, you know, fan service and all that, I'm like, whatever. You need to go do something that makes you happy. Drink some lemonade yeah. or something. Because, <laughs> because this was it. This was it. This was the closest to it, and I will throw this in before I throw it to uh, Bracey. Uh, this was the Luke that the Emperor wanted. This was the Luke that the Emperor feared. This was the Luke that he wanted to turn to the dark side because he knew this is what was going to happen because this is what would happen with Anakin's children. We finally got to see that in live action because we've seen it in the extended universe. We've seen it in Dark Empire. We've seen it in comics and novels. But we saw it for real here, actually, with Mark Hamill. So it, you can't enjoy this. I don't even understand. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I know I shouldn't say this, and I don't care either. <laughs> I don't understand how you call yourself a Star Wars fan if you can't enjoy, literally, peak Luke Skywalker. So whatever you're a fan of, go watch that. <laughs> Go ahead, Bryson. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, I think uh, Mark Hamill summed it up best when he tweeted that when you're given this great gift that you didn't even realize you wanted, uh, a paraphrase, mind you, uh, his reaction to it after everything he went through with The Last Jedi forward, uh, he really summed up his own feelings, and in a lot of ways he summed up ours as well. This was Luke Skywalker that we deserved and we finally got him after all of these years. Uh, and it's like notice to say, like, uh, even though I've, I'm obviously a, uh, a critic and a reporter on pop culture, uh, I'm also a fan. I'm a viewer. And when I go into a movie, as long as it doesn't make some really hideously glaring mistakes, the first time I can watch a movie and just enjoy it or a piece of media and then on reflection, I can think of like, oh, you know, well, that could have been done better, that this could have worked out a little bit better, uh, things like that. And uh, so when I, when I watched 
this, I wasn't bugged out by the CGI looking a little wonky. It was okay. The deep fake technology is pretty new. Uh, the same thing with Rogue One. It's like you said, when I saw Leia on screen, I saw Leia. When I saw Grand Moff Tarkin, I know a lot of people beat on the CGI at Grand Moff Tarkin. The whole time, me and my brother were there. I was like, look, it's Grand Moff Tarkin. We love that. We love seeing that character back on screen again. I don't think that's always the right thing to do. I don't want them to just uh, replace all actors with digital actors. But for like moments like this, you know, it has a time and a place, and these were the times and places for it. So I just enjoyed the moment for what it was. It was great for Mark Hamill to actually be portraying the character once again in the way that we want to see and, in fact, the way that he also wanted to do it. And the scene was indeed so touching, so heartbreaking. I agree with you, DT. This would have been the only moment that Din Djarin took off his helmet for me, other than, like, when he had to get the back to spray. I understand Pedro Pascal. He's an actor. He lives by his face, that sort of thing. But you know what? Uh, you also got to commit to the bit. Anthony Daniels never showed his face through nine freaking movies now, you know? And uh, we've got that. Doug Jones has made a career out of almost never showing his face. There are roles where he gets to do that. If you guys don't know who Doug Jones is, look him up. One of the greatest suit actors ever, and I've met him in person. Really lovely, lovely guy. So uh, with that said, it's like it's like Nemesis said, there's something broken in you. If, if you're just going to look at something to hate watch it, and try and figure out what you don't like. And even when we watch movies that we assume that we probably aren't going to like, uh, we do our best to give it as an objective and a view as possible because that's what we owe ourselves. And as critics, that's also what we owe the people out there who are going to listen into our podcast. Now, as for the scene that made me so, so happy, let's get into that. And DT, you you clicked right into something that I was going to mention right away. It was inescapable as soon as I saw it. The parallel between the Rogue One Darth Vader Hall fight and Luke Skywalker's Hall fight against the Dark Troopers. This was very clearly, very intentionally a parallel. Notice how Luke just moves. You know, he's, he's not in a rush. He's not doing that kind of Arturu uh, fighting style of like, you know, young Ben Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn and Yoda. Luke is measured and paceful and inevitable. He just moves calmly forward. This is even a, a great contrast to his own fights in Empire and Jedi. You can see that he's growing into that role in Jedi, but here we see it fully realized. And like Nemesis, I don't believe he's his full potential yet. He's just Jedi Knight Skywalker. He's not really Jedi Master level, but we, we're getting a taste of that. And one of the things I really appreciate uh, the fact of them doing is not only did we see that he just takes these very measured steps like Darth Vader, he just moves forward at this casual pace because there's nothing you can do, but he's also constantly using force powers while he fights. And the only other person we ever see do that is Darth Vader. We're seeing the flip side of Vader. We're seeing what Anakin could have been if he'd have been uh, dedicated to his Jedi purpose and uh, stayed on the light side of the force. And we get to see that embodied in Luke. And it's beautiful. And this also shows you the difference, not just between uh, Luke and Vader as well. There's similarities, but it shows the difference between him and Ahsoka. Ahsoka needed the help of Din Djarin to take a fortress. And she was in a one-on-one -on -one fight with somebody who was uh, probably uh, 
partially comparable to Moff Gideon. And, you know, she was able to hold her own with against a Jedi. Now, if you put Ahsoka in that situation, she might have won. Um, she might not have won. The dark troopers are nothing to mess with. But she's got a completely different fighting style, a completely different uh, quotient of force power that she uses. But Luke just moves through them. Nothing stops him. He's only even like barely momentarily slowed down by a, a trooper they slashes, just reaching out to grab him. He's like, oh, you're not quite dead yet. And he just flicks that saber over his shoulder and takes his head off from that point. He's just this juggernaut of force power. And, you know, as far as any other uh, people with martial or Jedi ability that we see who are left in the Star Wars universe, Luke is obviously top tier. Loved it so much. It's it's incredible. It's everything you wanted. Uh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I, there are certain moments that you think of when it comes to Star Wars that really kind of bring you joy or things that you remember. And I really think that this is going to be up there uh, with those. It's, to me, it, it's it's right up there with, you know, uh, I'm a Jedi like my father before me or, you know, I am your father. You know, these kinds of things that you really love as a Star Wars fan and you come back to. And I think Luke Skywalker destroying all of these dark troopers right at the right moment is definitely up there, and it was earned, okay? Uh, this was one of those things where I honestly thought that, you know, they weren't necessarily going to use Luke. Like, I thought it was going to be Ezra or somebody like that. No, the minute that the uh, X-Wing shows up, it's like, oh, my God, they brought in Luke Skywalker. And then it's, oh, my God, he is destroying these dark troopers like they're trash. He is destroying these robots that we have seen beat the hell out of Din Djarin, and he is just trashing these things like they're garbage and it's joyful to see because we want to see Moff Gideon lose. Um, he's such a horrible villain, or at least, you know, in, in terms of a threat, he's been such a threat up to this point. You know, he, you, you see how evil it is and you want him to, 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 to get his uh, just desserts. And Oh my God, does Luke bring in that? And the, and you see this in the look on Gideon's face where he goes from, you know, looking triumphant like he's going to win to finding out, oh, my God, this is a Jedi, and I didn't plan for this, and, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed. It is, <laughs> he's actually sweating. He's sweating in the scene. Yeah, the, the look of fear that, that Giancarlo Esposito brings to this is so amazing, and it sells the moment as well. And you just love all of this. And, you know, I don't see how you can, you know, just nitpick this apart and not see the joy for what it is. Um, and what it brings to the scene, and the fact that this is earned. We 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 know that there, that this has been foreshadowed, uh, because we know that they that Grogu, you know, summoned the Jedi, and we knew a Jedi had to show up. And you bring in the big daddy of him, you bring in Luke Skywalker, you know, you see, and not only you see Luke Skywalker, you see the guy that we know is going to be Grandmaster of the Jedi Order, and you see him, you know, absolutely taking everything that Yoda and Obi Wan taught him. And, and being the Jedi, as uh, Bracey said, that Anakin could have been and should have been. Um, all of this is just wonderful. Uh, I, I, you know, I, and, yeah, it, it's fan nostalgia, but so what? You know, it's poetry. It rhymes, as uh, George Lucas said. And in, that is exactly what it did with the Holloway scene. It, it, it's poetry. It rhymes. Uh, but this is one of those cases uh, that it works. You know, it's not, you know, being used uh, just to rehash a new hope. Uh, you know, as Force Awakens did. Um, it, it, it is used instead 
you know, to call back our memories of Vader and seeing how Luke Skywalker has grown um, into being the equal of his father. And that is what we would like to see. We like to see that, you know, he has finally taken those lessons that, have, that he has learned over three films um, and truly being the Jedi that we know he can be and should be. And it's the redemption of uh, Luke uh, after, you know, two movies and one scene uh, of the sequels where he was not he was not Luke Skywalker and and you know when the guy that that defined Luke Skywalker in three films tells you this is not how Luke Skywalker would act I think that that's as close to the word of God or the word of George Lucas or the word of a maker as you're going to get and I am so glad that he was able to come back in this scene big and strong even if it was just to provide a voice and a face model. Uh, to sell Luke Skywalker that one last time. He sounded like the Luke of old. Um, you know, and, and Mark Hamill got to walk off with some dignity, which he deserved and which his character deserved, and he never got in the sequels. I'm glad he got this here. And, and I think this is what a lot of these so-called critics are really complaining about, the fact that we all got to have our character back the way that he was written in the original movies, um, you know, treated with the respect that he should be given after being defiled uh, in The Last Jedi and just completely you know, used um, not to potential in uh, Rise of Skywalker. He deserved this moment. He got this moment. And Luke's fans are glad that he got this moment. And I am glad that Loloni and Favreau gave it to us. Um, absolutely perfect. Um, as far as the CGI, okay, I actually thought, uh, my first thought was, oh, my God, they really improved after Rogue One. Because, <laughs> yeah, I was one of those people that's like, okay, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin looked a little plastic. Um, it was fine. I mean, it was nice to see the character, but, you know, he definitely looked a little plastic. Uh, Luke in here doesn't. He, it looks like, you know, a regular, it looks like a guy. It looks like Mark Hamill. He may not look as much as like Hamill as we might like, but, I mean, the technology's definitely improved. They did him better. He was voiced by Mark Hamill, and, and Hamill did a great job with the voice. I have no complaints about any of this. Um, it is one of those fan-pleaser moments. It is, I think, one of them be those moments that are going to be iconic in the Star Warker saga. Um, and, and I would consider this last scene to be definitely part of that. Uh, you know, and, and we got what we wanted as Star Wars fans. I, I can't complain about that uh, in, in any way. This is what we want as Star Wars fans. And, and I'm so glad, you know, that we were able to have this moment before they, they all go off the stage. Um, as for uh, Din and, and Grogu, uh, yeah, this was the moment where I'm like, yeah, absolutely taking off the helmet was earned. It wasn't earned in the last episode. It was definitely earned here. Uh, and, and not just because um, of, of, you know, the fact that we want to see him um, gush over Grogu, which he does. I mean, we see that he loves the little Muppet son, and, and those are always really great harm-warming moments. This was another one of those, um, and, and it was nice to see that. Uh, the parting should be emotionally powerful, and it is emotionally powerful, and that's great. Um, but I would say also, in addition to that, it shows how much uh, Din has grown over the last two seasons. This was a guy who would not take his helmet off for anything for two seasons, and but because he loves this this child so much, because this adopted son that he is he's protected for two seasons means so much to him, he is willing to forsake one of the central tenets. Of, of the cult that he was raised in for him. I mean, does that, that shows, you know, mountains of character growth in a way that tons of dialogue doesn't. And, and Pedro Pascal, you know, doting on this kid, and we see it on this face that, you know, how much he loves this boy. 
you know, how much he, what, what he were, uh, what he's feeling at that moment. We needed to see that, and we saw that. And um, I, yeah, this was absolutely the conclusion that we needed from Din as a character. In addition to watching Luke, you know, tear through these dark troopers and have that final moment where we see him being the Jedi that we want him to see, and we see, you know, Din at the end you know, reaching the pinnacle. He is now um, the heir presumptive to the throne of Mandalore. Uh, and what is he going to deal with that? Um, we don't really care at this moment, but, but he has earned that, that, that right and that point. And he's also earned the right to take his helmet off and to send his son to Jedi school. And it's, it's just a wonderful, and you can't ask for more as a Star Wars fan. You can't ask for more as a Star Wars fan. No true words. Okay, we've hit the two-hour mark. We need to wrap up, but very briefly, let's talk about the uh, post-credit scene. We discover that Boba and Finnick go back to Jabba's palace, where Bib Fortuna has taken over the operations. Boba blasts his way in. Finnick sets the uh, slave girl free. I started to call her Orion, but that's Star Trek. Uh, blasts the slave girl free, and before it's all over, Boba sitting on the throne. Now that was the full completion of the Boba Fett redemption arc from being taken out like a punk and slowly being digested in Sarlacc pit, supposedly, to coming all the way back. And once again, we see peak Luke, we see peak Boba, and we see Boba get his revenge. Very briefly, give me your thoughts on that post credit scene, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, go ahead, Nemesis. Uh, I'm just going to put it this way. I did love the scene, but, you know, we were talking about points of view. I saw this completely different than everybody else. You know, Bob, this was merciful on Bubba's part because, you see, Bib was dying from diabetes, so this was a mercy killing on behalf of Bubba. <laughs> it was wonderful, wonderful compassion on his part, and, and I thought it was one, it, it just incredible. I was moved to tears. So. <laughs> go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I will say that at first I was like, huh, how did Bit Fortuna hold on to power in Jabba's palace for that long? I mean, wasn't there anybody that, you know, wouldn't have toppled him by now? But you know what? I don't care because uh, watching Boba Fett completely trash this guy and humiliate him is just absolutely gold. Uh, him and Fennec going in and and shooting all of these guys and, you know, Boba sitting on the throne of, of Jabba the Hutt like a boss. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful, especially after, you know, that whole thing in the bar with uh, with Sasuke. It's like, yeah, we need to have that awesome moment of Boba being just, just the baddest bounty hunter in the galaxy, and we got it. Uh, I'm looking forward to Book of Boba Fett. Give it to me now. Yep, Book of Boba Fett. Go ahead, Bracey. I'll tell you, like everybody else, uh, I love this, uh, barring the diabetes. Uh, <laughs> I've got it myself. But, uh, you know, they, they actually got the original actor who played Boba Fett to reprise his role just for that moment. And I that's, once again, just a, a great callback from uh, Filoni and Favreau. It just shows the, the respect they've got. If they can pull anything original, they will. And uh, the the circular nature of it, the, the completion of the circle here, because this is Boba Fett as we always saw him. Uh, in the original series, you know, he was a man of extremely few words. And how does he come in? He comes in with no words. He lets his actions speak for him. 
you know, Bib is just sputtering off, like saying all this stuff, trying to do whatever he can to save his life. And even in what he says, there's like little hints that maybe things are going on. You know, I heard rumors. Hey, you're still alive. You've been looking for you. There's there's a story in there that I really hope they're going to explore with the uh, book of Boba Fett. But I love how he just comes in once again, that uh, that silent, deadly, most feared man in the galaxy, and he just takes charge. And when he sits on that throne, he is the king of the underworld. And you got to love Finnick just popping top off of some alcohol and uh, taking herself a big old fat drink at the end of things. Amen. And this is how you want to set your audience up to get them excited for the Book of Boba Fett. That was a perfect uh, uh, lead-in, perfect tie-in. So, as always, uh, also the original actor, Jeremy Bullock, is the one that played Boba Fett. And he unfortunately passed away the day before this episode aired. So they dedicated the finale to his memory. I met Jeremy Bullock several years ago. Uh, I met all of them. We talked about actors that didn't show their face. I met Peter Mayhew. Holy cow, that man was huge, but he was really kind. So I met uh, Kenny Baker. I met Jeremy Bullock. I met Peter Mayhew. There was a line to meet Ray Parker. That line was kind of longer, so I didn't really get in that one. And then I met the actress that plays Mara Jade on all of the extended uh, Star Wars novels covers. So it was a great day, great geek day. They were so kind. I couldn't believe how nice they were. It was awesome. So <clears throat> this if was, I'm, like we said, this was peak. Isn't, a, isn't Boba Fett like Darth Vader? He's played bodily by one actor and voiced by another. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. So we, we, lost Although, the, we lost the physical man. We lost the Right. But they let Tamura voice him, I think. Yeah, he, all, they updated his voice with a. Yeah, they updated his voice with Morrison when George Lucas went back in for the special editions and all that, or one of his many edits. So, yeah. So just to close this out, just a great episode. You know, I couldn't agree any more possibly with. Nemesis' statements about how, you know, if you didn't enjoy this, you really needed to be doing something else with your time because it means you're a miserable person. Why, why are you just wasting your time being miserable? Go find something you like because we like this. We're super critical. We're super detailed. We're super fans, and this was enough to please even the most hardcore fan. And, you know, the only thing now is where do they go from here? Where do they go from here? Um, there's a lot of, of shows slated uh, to be released, and so we just have to see how that turns out. But as of the taping of this podcast, you know, we're definitely satisfied with the state of the Star Wars universe as depicted on The Mandalorian. And as it closed out its second season, it was very satisfying. So we can only hope to have moments this satisfying this exhilarating to take us all back to when we first discovered Star Wars, and no matter how old you are, making you feel like that kid once again. All right, I want to thank my co-hosts for this episode. We fought really hard to record this. You guys have no idea <laughs> what we went through to make this happen, but we've been wanting to talk about this for a long time, so we really want to hear from you, so 
Definitely hit us up on Twitter and give us some comments. So I want to thank David Nemesis Howard. Thank you so much, Dave. No problem, and I absolutely love this. In fact, and I do want to – I just want to throw this out there. I was so committed to doing this that my wife and kids went off. And shout-out to my wife and the priest. They gave me ashes for Ash Wednesday to my wife, and she came back and gave them to me while we were recording the podcast. So, <laughs> amen. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Steve. Shade Wayne Sellers. Yo, thank you. Um, I, I have to say, like, there are just some episodes that we just love them so much that we have to fight tooth and nail to record these podcasts and talk about them. And this was definitely one of those where wild horses, uh, stampeding would not have stopped us from making this thing because it means so much to us. A Star Wars means so much to us. And then in the end, this is what it is. It's a celebration of everything we love about Star Wars, and I'm glad to be part of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeff. Dr. Fate Bracey. Yes, indeed. Wild horses stampeding, uh, wild space horses stampeding across the top of a uh, of a, a leering uh, star destroyer uh, in a bad movie wouldn't <laughs> get me from doing this. I would just like to say all to all of you out there, thanks for uh, sharing this moment with us, and may the Force be with you always. Ooh. All right. Nice. And that's it for this episode of Sloppy Spoilers. We will see you guys. Next time, have a great night. Spoilers. Spoilers.